mind, maybe it is reconciliation. But from an Indigenous perspective, it's not a word that we chose. It was a word that was imposed that is still kind of perpetuating oppression. You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee, and my co-host is Jessica Vandenberg. It is always a great honour to be asked to acknowledge the land we stand on and the peoples of this land. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, Métis Nation, Zone Number 4, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And you may be joining from another treaty region, another Métis Nation zone, unceded land, or a different area. We stand upon a land that carries the footsteps and hearts of many First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples that have been here for thousands of years and many generations. We would like to acknowledge our and their relationship with Mother Earth and the traumatic and oppressive history that they have been through. It is an interconnected relationship that we have with land spirit, but we're all relations and we all have an obligation to that relationship. This land has nourished and healed, protected and embraced us. And we're grateful to the Indigenous peoples that have been stewards of this interconnected relationship with Mother Earth and land spirit. We're all relations, and as such, we all respect each other in our beliefs, but also our own individual relationships with Mother Earth and land spirit. And so from my heart and spirit to yours, I open this podcast in a good way. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation, dropping on Thursday, January 26th, 2023, our first episode of the new year. I'm George Lee, the producer of the podcast and also one of its co-hosts. So we're all about the words this time, especially the English ones. How they serve us, how they subvert our purposes, and how they just plain confound us. No guests this time, it's just Jessica and me discussing such things as the dominance of English on planet Earth, the concept of making treaty, and how both the function of treaties and their contents were misrepresented in English, the power of language, and how or even whether it influences, unblocks, and reflects our identities, the misuse of language through dog-whistling, coded messaging, and propagandizing, the employment of charity, humility, and seeking to understand when we communicate, grammar as a barrier to inclusion, This podcast's use of conciliation instead of reconciliation. What's that all about? Language protection, restoration, and advancement among Turtle Island's indigenous peoples. And more. So a lot of what you hear in my notes, both at the beginning and the end of the podcast, is scripted. But the rest of the podcast is largely unscripted, or at least it's very loosely scripted. This means that things slip in that aren't complete or they're inaccurate or they're misrepresented. I try to catch a lot of those things before we go live and talk about them here. But I do want you to know that if you hear something that you think is inaccurate or isn't complete, please reach out to us at unsettledjourneys at gmail.com. So here are a few clarifications about what lies ahead. We talk about the etymology of the word Aboriginal, and we didn't exactly get that right. The Latin prefix ab is a bit ambiguous because it can mean away, it can mean from, and sometimes it means away from. So our confoundment 
with the word is certainly justified, if not wholly accurate, in its origins. Corey Gray, who we mention, is indeed a physicist. He's also a member of the Siksika First Nation in Alberta. Yeah, you gotta Google this guy. And you might want to include the word Nobel when you do that. We also discuss the many official languages of the Northwest Territories. The latest number I can find is that there are 11 of them, nine of which are Indigenous, being Cree and five Dene languages and three Inuit languages. I can't say in what circumstances all or some of those languages appear in official documents, but I can confirm that in certain places and scenarios, services in some or all are often available. I sort of toss out the number 660 at one point, suggesting that there are that many First Nations or nations in Canada. That's the wrong way to put it. There are 630 plus First Nations communities in Canada, representing 50-some nations. I guess a better way to say it is 630 plus First Nations communities, 50 plus Inuit communities, and eight Métis settlements. So probably close to 700 Indigenous communities all in across Canada. That's it. Thanks for your patience, and let's get this show on the road. So I've done a little bit more reading on this. It's a fascinating fascinating subject when you start delving into it it is Uh, for sure yeah like to me there's two aspects of it that i find really interesting there is the aspect of the undeniable fact that english has become the language of commerce it's although it isn't the dominant dominant language in the world it is the language that provides the most opportunities for the most number of people to communicate, you know, even though there's way more Chinese speakers and there's way more Spanish speakers in the world, as far as native tongue goes, when you start putting second languages in there, you know, English is, is, is right up there and, and is the language of commerce and everything like that. And the language of power and the language, of course, of colonialism and comes out of this little group of islands, the dominant colonial force. So there's, tons of irony built in that that that's the language that um we use to talk about all these things and it's also the language of the treaties where there were the you know the numbered treaties i'm not telling you anything you don't know here but you know that there were these oral versions of what the uh the the indigenous leaders were signing and then there was the actual facts of the way they turned it into english and what and the trickery that was in when they had the actual document that was something different from what the understanding was between the nations in Canada. What the treaty was to the oppressing, colonizing powers versus what it was for the people who were looking at it as partnerships within this land and a variety number of peoples who, di- who didn't recognize the concept of land ownership and of, of that there was something that could be taken from them in that way. So it's pretty fascinating that that now is the uh, is the language we're now talking about when we're talking about Indigenous issues in Canada. So I find that aspect of it uh, pretty interesting. 
It's all very interesting in it um, because, you know, the concept of treaty is very different from the Eurocentric worldview interpretation of what treaty is. What treaty is um, in terms of, you know, as long as the sun shines, the grass grows and the river flows was intended not the way that Eurocentric looks at a contract, but it's misinterpreted to be like a contract. But contracts are one of those things that's anticipating failure, right? So what a contract is, is talking about, well, how are, what are we going to do if this doesn't work out? So let's write it all down and then be prepared for it not to work. So it's already setting it up for failure. But that was already the misinterpretation from the beginning, right? Because treaty was intended to think about the seven generations. And it's an agreement that goes on and on about good relations and with a deeper tie to the levels of Wakotoan that we've talked about before, where person, family, community, nation, um, ecological kind of world around you and spirit world, it it hits all of those levels, right? As this agreement between all of this and how it ties together and it comes with responsibility and accountability and all that stuff. And all of that is all tied together in what a treaty is. And it's just an understanding um, that's there not meant to be written down, right? Because then you lose the flexibility that's needed in order for it to last uh, beyond the next to the next seven generations, right? So, and then you write it down and then of course the Europeans write it down and whoever writes it down then is the interpreter of the one who it is. And so much then is lost in translation and lost in perhaps even somebody who wasn't even there. And then people revise it and people who who weren't even there to understand it all you know it's kind of like how the bible has gone through so many translations and the original intent of what the prophets probably meant and um, how they explained their experiences is probably like way off it's like playing the telephone game right and it's like way off from what the original intent and message was meant to be i'm kind of the the expert in semantics and usage and grammar and various forms of writing, especially journalism. But I kind of started thinking about, and as I started going down these various rabbit holes of a language, I realized, well, what I really am is I'm a subject matter expert, but I'm certainly not an English expert. And I'm certainly not a language expert in the, in the more um, academic and uh, studied point of view i i'm like i'm like the technician and to use that metaphor that i use often is you know i'm i'm the person out there trying to build uh, houses out of words and they kind of change shape and they do all that and i have all this understanding of how the various words fit together at a particular time as i'm doing it and then every once in a while i kind of look up and you know think about the forest i suppose (laughs) and that's what i've kind of done with some of the uh the reading that I've done and just kind of glancing through some of the things on the internet and everything like that. When you start talking about uh, the power of language and, and the research is very divided on whether you are locking in to an actual worldview that, that actually restricts the way you think because of your language or whether there's some degree of that or whether there's something intrinsic within uh within the English language that limits our ability to use it, you know, in, in certain situations. I find that all really, really fascinating. And it ties in with neuroscience and neurolinguistics and psychology. There's also the uh, etymology of the, the, the words too, or as I like to say, the entomology 
of the words that really bug me. That's a pause for a laugh nice, there. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Dramatic effect. <laughs> yes. if, I, if, I, if I had a, if I, this was an old timey radio show, that I could start a little fire <laughs> and wave some things there or something like that. No, but, but anyway, so I, I mean, I obviously, this is stuff that I've, I've always found really fascinating. And I find it really fascinating when we have discussions like the one we have about the use of the word reconciliation and conciliation. So maybe I'll just let you kind of respond to that little bit of a, <laughs> a, an, an introduction I gave. Sounds good. And um, I'm, a, I'm not an expert on anything in this role. <laughs> I'm someone with lived experience that likes to read a lot and likes to think a lot on these ideas and subjects. And, you know, when it comes to language, uh, the image that always stands out my, in my mind is um, one of those award-winning pictures of, of the bird that you can see its, its um, song coming out of its beak. Have you seen that one before? Right. And, and, you know, to me, when we talk a lot about Indigenous worldview, we talk about spirit, right? And what is spirit? And it's uh, sometimes synonymous with energy. You know, you're taking the spirit of land out when we're excavating and exploiting the land and taking out the minerals or whatever it is that is in there, we're taking the energy out. But it's the same with the power of voice. It turns your thoughts and opinions and ideas into and interpret it closer to what you, your brain processes as truth right as soon as it comes from your brain and then comes out of your mouth and you put it into whatever language or sound that there is and as an engineer we know that there is sound energy you can harness that there is a way to balance that too and so when we talk about language I always think of this um, that it's part of the value of truth right because it it comes out of your mouth and so that's why you know, when you ground in those seven sacred teachings, the power of oral tradition, the power of all of that ties to all of those, right? You need to be thoughtful in your words. You grow respect respect out of it. You need to be thoughtful in them because you want to be honest because uh, it then becomes the truth when it comes. Um, you need to have the courage to know what to say and what to speak because um it then will generate feelings and thoughts in other people. So you need to be really mindful of it, of what you say, right? So it touches upon all these values too. And I think a lot of people put a lot into what you're going to say and the impact of it always, and not only just on yourself, but everything around you, what you have now put out there as a possible truth rather than just an idea. Mm -hmm. And so much of this speaks to our own understanding of what we're saying and other people's interpretation of what we're saying and what we've used to, you know, the forums that we've used to say those words. I think of things like political dog whistling, where you're, you're speaking to a particular audience that they're going to hear something that really motivates them in a negative or positive way, but you're speaking directly to them with coded language. That speaks to the truth and the honesty that you're talking about. That is a very direct communication to a particular audience trying to subvert or go around another audience or at least to be give you the out that I didn't say that. All I said was was this. And we have a lot of that type of communication going on right now instead of the communication where you seek to understand. Because what I find is really, really important is 
this idea of a little bit of charity to the people that you're talking to and the people who are talking to you. And when you don't understand each other, if you seek to understand before you seek to attack, and if they are people of good intention and people that are that are really honestly trying to understand and listen to you and to listen to each other, that that concept of charity is and letting them letting them make mistakes without attacking them for it, but instead seeking that that power of understanding. And sometimes, you know, the actual grammar itself becomes a tool of oppression. This is something I've read a little bit about. I had this wonderful teacher back, elementary school teacher, and he had the concept of, of in grammar, of, of when there were things that you left out of a sentence that allowed you to kind of take grammatical shortcuts. And it was called, you understand. And I've never found it anywhere else on the internet. So it might have just been his concept as a grade seven teacher. I don't know. But it allowed kind of rhetorical devices like using sentence fragments and all the kinds of things that I like to do in, in journalistic writing, particularly in magazine writing and editing as allowing these, these certain rhetorical devices that don't follow the strict rules. I'm one of the people that be, can become kind of pedantic and prescriptive about it. Although I like to think that I change with language or I try to alter language as, as we, as, as I move forward in life. But, um, the the key is whether the other person is understanding and putting things in a way that people understand and also accepting that we all carry different baggage with words. And that's what semantics is. You know, my definition of a chair is slightly different than your definition of a chair. You know, maybe you include things that I would call a stool or a stepladder in your definition of a chair. And every chair you've met is not every chair I've met <laughs> in, my, in my life. So it's very true. <laughs> So we have those kinds of things that we're dealing with too. One of the things we talked about is, are there inherent limitations within English? And what what do you think about that? Are there inherent limitations in the language that we're using when we talk about a lot of these issues? These are great questions. Uh, and the like, I just want to jump back to what you said about uh, communication. That communication is not only trying to send your message and using um, being able to articulate what you're trying to send. It's always making, also making sure that the other person is receiving your message and understanding the same as you, right? And I find a lot of um, colonial processes get lost in the categorization of things or the labeling of things rather than the essence of, of what the subject is, right? And, and trying to get to that common understanding. And it makes me think of our days in another lifetime, George, where we had to know Robert's rules of order. And, you know, like it came down to all these things. And in the end, you're like, well, we just, you know, we spent a very long time talking about that, but not the actual essence of what we are trying to do. <laughs> and it, it makes you wonder around, all of that, like how much we get lost in semantics and categories and terminology and then labels of, and then you get lost in all of that, right? Every elder that I've talked to almost always says the same things. Like we're given two ears, one mouth. <laughs> you need to listen twice as much and speak um, uh, to how much you speak, right? And so the value when sitting with Indigenous peoples and community is that everything slows down. And you sit and you listen a lot. And there's a lot of nodding, not nodding because you agree, but nodding because you're listening, right? And then a lot of 
just making sure that you go back and sit on whatever it is that's spoken. And often um, what is shared has multiple interpretations, um, things like that, um, but they're meant to, right? And when you talk about limitations of language, I don't speak any native languages. Like uh, I don't speak any of them. But what I am told is that a word will have multiple meanings, uh, multiple pieces to it that changes context depending who and how you're talking with it. And so it's something very dynamic and fluid rather than very static and finite, uh, which I find the English language to be more static and finite rather than fluid. And then that in itself, because of the fluidity, if you're approaching a conversation, you're already approaching and knowing that it's fluid, right? So that changes how you are listening to that conversation, which I think makes a very big difference. Yeah, and I wonder how much that is to do with also the conventions within our language too. And and I don't know the conventions of indigenous languages. I mean, there's there, there's multiple ways of looking at it. Some people say it's a really diff- English is really difficult to learn. Others say, well, you know, the verb forms most of the time are pretty standard. The sentence structure is most of the time subject, verb, object. Maybe a lot of those things are kind of built into the into the structure too, the very structure of the way we speak. And the words do change over time. And English has been a very, it's been a vacuum cleaner of a language. Like it's picked up from everybody, you know, including indigenous languages, it's picked up words. And I think that's as much as anything that's because of its dominance. It needs to do that because of its, its breadth and its spread. Let's just say it, the power that in itself is, is pretty fascinating. But we do have these issues with pronouns. We have an issue with pronouns now. And, you know, grammar people go, ah, I can't do that. I can't use they. And I can't. And we don't have these words for in between. We don't have the words for the breadth of, you know, whether a person is uh, their sexuality matches, their gender matches, their gender role. We don't have the words to separate that. And we've kind of got trans now and we've got. Which, which, which is funny, which goes back again to. um you know, folks getting lost in the labels and then trying to fit, you know, a round peg in a square hole. Like it makes me think of um, Corey Gray, who's a, a First Nations um, Indigenous. Um, uh, I forget what his degree is, but it's astrophysics or it's physics or um, in the science realm. And his um, mom comes and translates all his scientific papers into Blackfoot language. And but she has to then create new language, right? So describing some physics phenomena, she will come up with a, an appropriate Blackfoot language to describe that phenomena. So why wouldn't that be the same in English? Why would you not find something that works for what we're trying to talk about? And I think that's where the, the rules of grammar kind of become a tool of yeah, a power, because who makes the rule? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Somebody's yes. making these rules out there, whoever makes the yeah. dictionaries and, and I mean, all that. <laughs> technically, the rules were created after the words came out, and then the rules started dictating the way we use the words. You know, we find that with, with all kinds of idiom and uh, various different provincial or local ways of speaking. Oh, Oh, I wanted to back up to one other thing. You know, we talk about the the oppressive power of language. 
And in that former life you alluded to, well, this is a long time ago, but there was a person who thought it was fine that the language used for registering to become a professional in this organization, that it was fine, that it was convoluted and academic and, and difficult to understand. It was difficult to understand for someone whose first language was English. And the idea that this was some kind of litmus test for, well, you don't really understand what it's like to practice in this country unless you can decode the convoluted language that we use to describe it. Yes, I'm sorry. this is. That's yeah. colonialism. That, that's, that's a power imbalance is what that is in my mind. It, it is. And, and this is an interesting one, too, because, you know, when we talk about discrimination based on the identity wheel and things like that, people often jump to ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation, things like this. But one big one that is often there that isn't always talked about is education uh, discrimination as well, right? So part of that privilege uh, of which our academic institutions and professions and all are built upon from 150 years ago is, again, to favor certain demographics because only they could access those things at that time. And now we live in a world where we're trying to make sure that these institutions and all of this stuff is open to everyone. But there now there's already all these gates that were meant um, at one time as gates. But now we have to figure out how to um, take them apart, right? Mm-hmm. to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, and my co-host is George Lee. Okay, I hope you're ready for a pitch. Wouldn't you love to be like Mandy, Colin, Josh, and Marilyn? All of them are recent donors to the show. If so, Find your way over to coffee.com Unsettled Journeys. That's K-O hyphen F-I slash Unsettled Journeys. As we discussed the two terms, conciliation and reconciliation, and I'm going to make the case for reconciliation or the things that were going through my brain <laughs> when I thought we should go back to calling our podcast Unsettled Journeys in Truth. Not go back because we never were called this, but that we yeah. should change it to Unsettled Journeys in Truth and Reconciliation and what my thought process was. But just so there is no drama here, you know, I have come around <laughs> to to, uh, to to accept what Jessica was saying about it. And one of the great consequences of our choice of the word conciliation is we get to talk about why we got there, you know, and it is a stopper. Like people stop and think about it. And, 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 and I think ultimately that's a good thing. And I think the credit um, originally goes to one of our former guests as well, right? Um, for conciliation. Yeah. It, it really does. And I, and I want to throw one other Matthew Oliver quote in there is one of the things he was busy learning when we were first talking to him, busy learning mischief. And was on that journey as a, as a Métis person. And he said he was learning the language because languages reveal worldview. And I think that's really part of what we're talking about here too. And, and to what extreme do they dictate our thoughts and how do we let, we let our thoughts go beyond the worldview 
that's already encoded into the language that we speak, which is our challenge, you know, as people who don't, who are discussing Indigenous issues, but, but don't speak Indigenous languages, although you are way farther along than I am in picking up some of the concepts and the words that apply to them. So we do, we do owe him. And then I've done some research on it since then. And then we, we end up at this point where all of a sudden George thinks, Oh, we you know we're just wrong. Everybody's using the term reconciliation and, and, and we aren't. So some of the points that I was thinking of at that time were it's the word that's being used. So the basic semantic argument, like, look, this is the word that's being used. Let's stick with it. Words change with use and this has come to apply to the, to exactly the thing we're talking about. The term reconciliation has. There's an accounting definition of reconciliation, which is just evening out the books. Also, there was kind of the cumbersomeness of using conciliation when other people are using reconciliation and it just looks like we don't know what we're talking about. So how would you respond to that, Jessica? 100% there's a a response to this, George. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, just to to talk about everyone else is using the word reconciliation. That's not a good reason to do anything because everyone else is doing it, right? Um, and we look back at like uh, Indian. So Indian was a word used a long time ago. That was what was used at that time. But that is not a word chosen by our people for about to describe themselves. Reconciliation was also not a word chosen by us. It's a word that was given by the government to describe, you know, what they were trying to do. And from a government viewpoint, in my opinion, they're trying to reconcile and still make this whole Indian problem go away, right? So in their mind, maybe it is reconciliation. But from an Indigenous perspective, it's not a word that we chose. It was a word that was imposed that is still kind of perpetuating oppression. Throughout history, there were words like Indian given to us, uh, Native was given to us, Aboriginal was given to us, even Indigenous was given to us, right? And it would be great if someone went to an elder and said, okay, what is the actual word in, in your Cree language or your Dene language to describe what we're trying to do and then have it named that? Like it, it's something that if we are going to create reciprocal relationships, if we're going to move forward together, then that in itself is a huge gesture of what we're trying to accomplish, right? For me, I had, uh, I've talked with a lot of people around in this space for a very long time. And again, reconciliation in terms of accounting terms is not what we're trying to do. You can't just tally it all up and call it a day for the horrific cultural genocide that's happened and is still happening. Like you can't. How do you make up for that? But people, like the the point was trying to assimilate, trying to eliminate uh, in horrific, torturous ways. Like it just, you can't reconcile for that. What's the value of a human life? You can't put a dollar figure on it. You can't put an amount of time that uh, it will pass and it'll be okay, right? So reconciliation, I don't think is the right word. But one that I've heard that really resonates with me is reciprocity, right? And so reciprocity is more around building strong relationships, going forward together, working together, equal partners, like, because this is meant to be continuous, ongoing from now until forever. There isn't a time that these efforts need to stop, right? So 
conciliation, I think, I don't know if it's, it's the right word, but to what you said earlier, I think it's important because it makes people pause, right? And then we start the conversation, right? It's important to have things that make people wake up to what it is that we're trying to do with all the calls to action and what we're trying to do with repairing some very horrific actions of the past and, and move forward to build healthy, safe relationships and communities and, and people together. One of the ways of describing it is conciliation is the, is the actual building of a partnership or a bridge. Reconciliation is rebuilding it because it existed already once before. And the contention is that there's nothing to reconcile because there was no, there was nothing there. That betrayal was from day one onward. Therefore, Canada can't reconcile because Canada hasn't been doing the right thing. So it becomes conciliation. And, and as you say, reciprocity is perhaps even a better word. Yeah, and that's a very good point. Right from the beginning, the attitude was conquer, abolish, take over, possess, what, whatever. Like some of the wordage in the doctrine of discovery, all of that, the attitude that has been foundation to to everything um, in terms of treatment, but tides are changing. There is things being done now. There's so many examples of guests that we've had of efforts being made that have made such huge positive impact and, and that does need to be celebrated and all this work that we do is under this realm of what's now known as reconciliation. But is that the right word? Um, I don't know. But again, we can't get lost in all of this and, and forget to do anything, right? So it's more about the actions that people take. I set this up as a little bit of a Jessica versus George thing, but that's really not what it is. So another point, no. there, <laughs> another point there, there is, is that reconciliation has taken on a lot of baggage of some not actually beneficial. It, it, it's such a catch-all phrase for so many things that aren't really accomplishing much, or in fact, are just paying lip service to the whole idea of what actual reciprocity is between the various peoples and nations in Canada. So it's got that to it too, is that, is that there is a whole industry of reconciliation that works at varying degrees. It will always be the, or, or maybe not always be the official word, but it, w- it will be the name of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the calls to action came out of that commission. So there are terms, just like there are times when we will say, for example, the Indian Act until that gets changed. There are times when we will use the term reconciliation, but as a term to describe what needs to happen, we're using conciliation. And I think perhaps, as you've suggested, uh, reciprocity we'll use quite often too, when we're talking about these things. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's that's good. (laughs) I know a lot of very big-hearted people of a certain age, let's say, it's not necessarily mean-spirited. It's just they've become, they're not really as rigid in their thinking as they are in their inability to just change a lot of these verbal constructs that they're used to. They feel lost. I'm not going to say I've done my best. I've done some things to try and really understand. I'm trying to understand and, and I'm trying to share with other people. And when I get somebody who's non-Indigenous and we talk about it, you know, sometimes I see some of those things come up and I have to be very careful not to be frustrated with them and just give them the time 
and give them that charity. Cause, cause I sure don't know everything. I mean, there's what 660 nations in, in Canada. I mean, none of us are ever going to know everything about every nation and, and all the indigenous peoples in this country. And Indigenous peoples aren't a monolith and things are going to be different between different communities, even though there are some commonalities, there are some huge differences uh, as well. I just wanted to throw that out there, that as much as I do think white people just need to get over themselves a lot of the time when when they're faced with a lot of these issues, as much as I agree with that, I also think if they're making an effort just help them rather than attack them for it and maybe ease them out of their white fragility when they get a little frustrated. You know, um, I've thought about this a lot, right? Um, Cause I work in this space and you meet uh, everyone, all sorts of people from you meet all sorts of people <laughs> who have all sorts of opinions around this and, and how do you navigate it and how do you handle it? Um, there's a couple of things that I always go back to. Number one, you can't change how people think or feel. Only you can change how you think and feel and I can change how I think and feel. So for people, when we're talking about the truth of what has happened, there are some people who are ready for that conversation and some people that aren't. So there's people who live in this fear zone. There are people who deny that there was ever any oppression or say things like, uh, well, all lives matter, right? Um, you know, isn't that reverse discrimination against white people? That's usually what comes from that uh, fraction of folks. Then you have the people in the learning zone who know there's things there, they know a little bit, but they're still kind of held back from fear for whatever reason, you know, fear of offending or fear of doing something wrong or, you know, worried about being blamed or worried about them getting a target on them for standing up amongst their peers or amongst a group of people that they don't have any experience with. And then there's the people, of course, in the growth zone who are active in doing things and, and making reconciliation happen. When, what I say to folks is that, you know, I've engaged people in all of those different kind of zones. And I've chosen very deliberately never to engage people in that fear zone. It's not my responsibility to change how you think or how anybody else thinks, but especially if they're not ready for a conversation and there is a certain amount of humility that you need in order to have those conversations with those folks. You can talk about truth and things that's happened in the past, but as soon as it starts getting into the world of opinions, we all have our right and freedom to believe and think as we will, right? And that that's how we walk with humility. We walk with being able to control ourselves and and um, but not imposing our opinions or beliefs on other people, right? So you need your space to believe how, what you're going to believe and I need my space to believe what we're going to be. Uh, we're never going to 100% align. There'll be places that we don't, but we need that space. But when it comes to the truth, there are facts about things that have happened in the past and the impact of those. If they're not ready for that conversation, they will never be ready for that conversation. And so you just leave them alone. One of the things that just jumps into my mind is that we do live in an age where facts and opinion are really are, are really difficult to separate, more and more difficult to separate. And people having their own reality is often based on, on for sure falsehood. for sure and this is this is where it's headed because um, again we were talking about white fragility so 
part of the truth is accepting that systematic racism came from colonization and that systems were built within this country that were favoring a certain demographic, which at that time were able-bodied white men. Gender discrimination has come a ways. Recognition that there's different identity types have come a long ways, but also now this recognition that there was very deliberate, intentional action to oppress First Nations, Métis, Inuit people. And that's being starting to be recognized and, and things are starting to decolonize, right? And so when it comes to this, uh, the concept of white fr- fragility, again, it's people who have lived in comfort for a long time. And if you're comfortable, it, it will take a lot of motivation, self-motivation, something to spur growth or something to spur thought in order for you to move from your comfort zone. And often when I talk to people, often you see that because of the humility teaching and the courage teaching. It takes courage to go outside your comfort zone, but humility is about service to others, right? So it's people coming out of their comfort zone, whether it is to help or whether it is they want to share what they have or whether it is they want to take up some responsibility or whether it is whatever it is that they want to do for someone that's not themselves. And that is what motivates reconciliation. You're listening to Unsettled. Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm George Lee, and my co-host is Jessica Vandenberg. I'm just going to reference a few books here and there, if that's okay. Could I just jump into that to reference a few books? One of them is... The uh, the Elements of Indigenous Style, A Guide to Writing by and About Indigenous Peoples by Gregory Younging, who, who just sadly just died a couple of years ago. And he, uh, so he started out as a, as a writer and he, be, he became a published poet with, a, with one company and he ended up becoming an editor there. And there he learned as an Indigenous person that this was a problem, not only for, for non-Indigenous people, but for indigenous people and for the things that they write and to standardize things a little bit within the English language that that respected the breadth of the cultures that were involved and what kind of words you can use like what like like umbrella terms like indigenous peoples so he he feels indigenous peoples is a, is a pretty good one because as, as soon as you put that s on the end it reflects that there's a whole bunch of different communities it's not just suggesting that they're all one thing but because they're peoples that there's that there's more of them anyway tons of things like that and it really speaks about letting people tell their stories and if you just kind of read through the things he says in this book one of the things that it really spurs in you is this desire to see what various indigenous peoples are writing like what are the artists writing about what are the poets what are the novelists what are the journalists uh who represent the indigenous community now what are they saying and they're telling their stories now and this also speaks to anthropology i mean we used to as a country 
white people told the stories of indigenous people through their own lens. And it was more than a lens. It was, it was their own incredible prejudices that created a whole other uh, story that was actually from the people who were oppressing them at the time, you know, so, so this is, so he really speaks to that. He really speaks to the whole idea of letting people tell their stories. And interestingly enough, as we talked about before, telling them in English, and there's these powerful indigenous writers in English. Another one, I think she's a colleague of yours. I don't know whether you've met Chelsea Vowell. Have you met her at? Uh, I don't know if I've met her or not, but um, I have met a lot of people. So <laughs> maybe I have. <laughs> so her book, I'm just going to try and find um, uh, the, the one book of hers that I'm reading. It's called Indigenous Rights, A Guide to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Issues in Canada. It's one of those books that is really a good grounding book that really speaks to the complexity of the different ter- the, the various terms there are to describe indigenous peoples and experiences in Canada. So it's really a good, a good grounding. She's got a real kind of sassy style, uh, which is a lot of fun. And she also has, uh, she doesn't back down from things being complicated. Understanding what the imprint of the Indian Act on top of all these communities, what it has done and the various things that have happened within the communities and the language we use to describe the treatment and the uh, the regulation, let's call it that, the regulation and the oppression of, of Indigenous peoples in Canada. So really fascinating to read. So that that's one that came up as I was looking for things to, to read about language. One that I'd recommend as well, it's called Métis, Race, Recognition, and the Struggle for Indigenous Peoplehood. This is by Chris Anderson, who is the current dean of the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. And he talks about the definition of Métis, and he talks about the complexity of the Métis story, which, again, often, even just talking in the reconciliation space, people often quickly uh, just jump to First Nations, forgetting that there's Métis and Inuit. But the Métis story is very complex because, the you know, the approach that was taken by Canada and the Crown, they approached First Nations trying to, as a whole, deal with them, right? So deal with them through the Indian Act. But the Métis, the tactic was not all together. It was individual, right? So let's individually take away all your plots of land. And so they individually went out and and created road allowance communities and things like that. And either they were subjected to, you know, if they honored their First Nations blood, they were subjected to the Indian Act, or they could go and join their European ancestors and families, but then not be accepted either. And so at an individual level, it, there was destruction. Anytime you read about a Métis person's journey, the, the thing they come back to is, is walking up to somebody and then someone saying, "Oh, you're Métis. Which one of your parents is? Ind- which one of your parents is? Yeah. White? Which one's or, indigenous?" Or automatically just judging you, like, "Oh, you're you're not you're not you can't be Métis. You don't look yeah. Métis, right? Yeah, like, yeah. who yeah. is the like? And this is a remnants of colonialism. Other people having the right to tell you what race you are and what ethnicity you are, knowing nothing about you. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it just it's so absurd. It's it just yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah, 
the whole story of of Métis peoples in Canada is 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 again is part of the formation of the country. This is the 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 fabric of our country. It is is so intertwined with uh, with the with the Métis experience as well as with the the First Nations and the Inuit experience. So yeah, yeah, for sure. You're listening to Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation. I'm Jessica Vandenberg, and my co-host is George Lee. If I'm talking too much, you know you know what to do. Just listen, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course, George. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I'm here all week, blah, blah, blah. Um, so maybe we could just talk about, uh, oh, I want to just jump to the word settler. I'm stunned by the fact that people like me won't own that. Why don't you own that? And why do you think it's pejorative to say that you're a settler? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's not an insult like many of the other terminology that we have been subjected to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not slinging mud by using that term. (laughs) No, no, it's just, it's just a very descriptive word about where you came from. I mean, this is what my Canadian roots are. I am a settler and that, and that differentiates me from you. That differentiates me from lots of other people that have arrived since. And they're all cues, like all of, all of these things, like, you know, uh, often we talk about land acknowledgements, uh, like that, that's not, that doesn't come from us. That comes from you folks, but we support it, right? Because yeah. they're cues to think about reconciliation in your daily life. Yeah. Settler is again, a cue to start a conversation and talk about why that is there. Right? Uh, conciliation in our title is a cue to talk about that, right? So it's creating the space for someone to say, oh, what is that all about? It's why we have awareness days. It's why we wear the wear dresses and the orange shirts. So someone to say, why are you doing that? Because we are still at a point where we don't have the critical mass that this is part of everybody's daily life. And so all these cues are needed in order to continue trying to create a movement in order to make real systematic change. I, I like that, a cue, that these are verbal cues that uh, to, to, to spark discussions. Um can I just go through a few words and just ha- and let you talk about them? So okay. So why is native as an adjective okay, but not as a noun? <laughs> <laughs> these are these are great questions. And just as a note, like um, again, I speak only from my own opinion. Um, I don't yeah. speak on behalf of every First Nations, Métis, Inuit per- person in Canada. I Absolutely, want to make sure that yeah. disclaimers in there because, quite honestly, there's a lot of um, people that are perfectly fine with the use of the word native. Um, and it's used quite commonly um, in some in some circles, for sure. Realizing this is an opinion, absolutely. You know, whereas I represent all white people. I just want you to know that way. <laughs> you have the authority. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's a long, complex. You don't want to hear how I got this power and authority. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> Um, for me, it doesn't offend me, the use of the word native, quite honestly. Um, I don't know. I don't have a really strong opinion or viewpoint either way on that one. In reference to Indigenous peoples in Canada and the whole 
the, the whole realm of Indigenous peoples in Canada. When is it okay to say Indian and when is it not okay to say Indian? Well, it's best not to not to say that one. <laughs> that one causes a little bit more offense, but it's perpetuated through things like, like legislation because it exists as a legal term in the Indian Act itself. So it's perpetuated through case laws tied to government use of it. It's one of those things that will be harder to eliminate from common uh, vocabulary. And as well as our neighbors to the south also use a number of these terminologies that's ingrained in their own legislation and their approach to reconciliation as well, right? So terms like Native American are used down south, or you hear these terms uh, perpetuated through Hollywood, right? Through movies and TV shows and things like that, right? So Indian for me is not one that I use to call myself, and it's not one that is commonly used anymore. It's very much associated with the oppression that came with the Indian Act, right? If it's within a proper name, you know, for example, the the band in, in my hometown is still called Penticton Indian Band. So when you're using it in a proper name, when you're referencing the Indian Act, when you're quoting something where it was used. So I think there are situations where you do use it. You just don't use it in kind of your everyday references to Indigenous people. And I guess the other thing too is uh, any Indigenous person can claim that word as their own and that's fine. If a person is comfortable using that word in their everyday life, that doesn't immediately give me permission to start using it as a non-Indigenous person. 100%. And it's one of those things where you have to, again, walk with that humility and courage to say to somebody, like, is it okay if I use this terminology around you? Or what would you prefer I use? And and be able to hear back, maybe, no, don't use that. That really offends me. Or, you know what, I don't mind that. Uh, We can use that in this conversation. Or hearing back, you know what, I prefer something more along these lines, right? So just having that humility and courage to just simply ask the people that you're talking to. What happened to the word Aboriginal? It was kind of the word that we used. Now we don't use it. And uh, what happened there? Well, again, it was a a term given by the government. And so do you want to be called Aboriginal? (laughs) Do you want to be called offside from the original? No, (laughs) it just, (laughs) no, it's not something that... (laughs) you want to be called. So it was not received well. <laughs> so it's gone away. It's really a bizarre word. It's I don't, a bizarre I don't, word. It's a I, bizarre word. Yeah, I just don't get it. You know, like ab means other, you know, like other than original basically is what it's saying. It just, it just really doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, that one came up and went away pretty quickly, I think. <laughs> Half breed is a is is a very derogatory term. Uh, again, kind of the same rules I think as Indian. If you know, I've used it just because I'm using them as an example, <laughs> just because I'm speaking about it here. But but that's that's not something uh, to to use. Uh, this is really important for people, I think, to understand. One of the things they, as far as language goes, understanding numbered treaties and modern treaties or land settlements and what and that these are all a continuation of of the of the discussion of uh, reciprocity in Canada. Yeah, for sure. Like um 
again, treaty, as we started out this whole conversation with, has been misinterpreted um, over the years of what an, an intention of a treaty is and, and more interpreted like a contract than what a treaty really is, what it means to be in treaty with someone. And as well, treaties don't occur just between people. You can be in treaty with the land and, and the other relations that we, we hold, right? So there are many things called treaties, but again, not with the original intent of what treaty is, what it means to be in treaty. But if we're talking about the treaties that were signed prior to Canada becoming a country, those are the numbered treaties. So a lot of them signed with the crown, which is uh, a way through the legal system to allow nations now to make a play for sovereignty, which and independency, right? Because these treaties were signed with the crown and not Canada. There are still treaties being signed to this day. There's a lot of what they call modern treaties uh, in the Ontario area, um, lots coming up in BC. So there are still treaties being signed today. So this isn't a thing of the past, right? So that's important for people to know as well. And then through all of the the treaties, um, they all have different languages. So there's no standardization amongst all of them or anything like that. They were all negotiated with the bands in the area at that time and the nations in in that time. So some refer to land, some do not, some refer to resources and water rights and all this stuff. So they all are interpreted very differently and applied very differently depending where they are and what is included within them and what is not included within them. You go online and and a band now has like two or three different spellings of its name. And it's got some where, um, you know, where you actually have the letter seven in there somewhere. And I don't know how to read that word, you know. Yes, yes. So this, this, this is a good topic, right? Like, um, so many nations and bands are naming themselves of what they call themselves not in the English language, in their traditional languages, and then writing them in their traditional languages. And, you know, it it reminds me, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but it reminds me of Wales. And I don't know if you've ever traveled through Wales, but the northern part of Wales, they speak uh, Welsh, like a whole nother language. Um, But everybody can jump back and forth between English and Welsh very fairly quickly. But if you hear the Welsh language, it's very different than English. Like there, there's no way you can kind of partially interpret what they're saying. It's very different. And all their signs are in, in Welsh and English, right? And it reminds me when I drove through there of driving through Enoch Cree Nation here, which borders upon Edmonton, because their signs are now including Cree language as well as English language. And you hear people naming their traditional names when they're introducing themselves and their families in their own languages and they'll greet you in their own language and like this restoration of language and culture is such an important healing piece of what has been taken away right and so that whole area is very much in line with reconciliation and again there is that midway point too where you get a lot of uh you get a lot of uh uh, of nations that have an English version of their of their name now that more accurately reflects the way it was actually spoken by the people in the day. I want to point out that the Northwest Territories actually has uh, a number of official languages other than English and French. So they list, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six Indigenous languages as also official languages. So any documents that come out from their government comes out in all of these languages, which I think is amazing. 
this discussion is, I think, just so important. I don't remember if it was last year or if it's this year declared the year of the language by United Nations. Uh, it might have been last year. But language restoration is so important. It ties to culture. It ties to identity. It's part of what was stripped out actively as part of the Indian Act, being punished and put in jail if you're speaking your own traditional languages and abused in schools, uh, the same punished and abused in schools if, if you were speaking them. So language is so important that we support the restoration of it, that we recognize that there is power in words, there's power in language, verbal abuse is a real thing. Power control about use of language is a real thing that, that these are some of the truths that we face. And part of what's happening in this country is that we do have to face the truths in order to move ahead with reconciliation. I'm, I'm glad you brought up language restoration because I think that's a whole other topic. There are not a whole other topic. It's very much related, but it's happening in so many different communities across the country. And every one of those is a, is a story. You know, every one of those is a wonderful story of the dedicated people who are working to restore and perpetuate their languages. And, and the enthusiasm of the people who are learning them is, is, uh, is great. So I think maybe we'll end it on that if that's okay. Yeah, I better run here. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, stuff. Okay. okay. Right. Thanks. Bye. Unsettled, Journeys in Truth and Conciliation is a production of Features West Studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, in Treaty 6 and Métis Region 4 Territory. Co-hosts Jessica Vandenberg and me, George Lee. Music written and performed by Kevin John of the Cayucat Chekloset First Nations on Vancouver Island. Logo conceived and designed by Corrine Riedel and Sandy Brown Van Dam. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, please consider supporting the show financially. You can do that by making a one-time or ongoing donation through our coffee account. That's ko-fi.com slash unsettledjourneys. We're listed in all the major podcast directories and some of the minor ones too. Our Facebook community is an established link to Indigenous news and events, so you can check us out there. And Jessica and I are also regular posters on LinkedIn. We're kind of a big deal, or at least a medium-sized one. Anyway, no matter what the groundhog sees about a week from now, please keep on listening. Over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. Over and over.